The world-renowned Vishen Lakiani, founder of three companies, CEO of Mind Valley, and author of best-selling The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, sat down with Ivy members during a recent Ivy Ideas Night to share his journey through successes and failures. During our discussion, he'll teach us how we can all live a more fulfilling and productive life. Lakiani speaks about his radical philosophy to wake up the consciousness of the human species by changing education, business, religion, and politics in order to rebuild our planet, and in turn, rebuild ourselves into a happier and more unified community. Welcome. Thank you all for being here tonight. My name is Barry. I'm a co-founder of Ivy, and it's an absolute, thr absolute thrill to have you all here. Um, usually when you organize an event, you anticipate, you know, not everyone who RSVP'd will show up. Well, tonight I think we have 99 or 100% show rate. I think someone's in the bathroom. But otherwise, we've got a full packed house. If you're standing in the back, there, are, there is space. There's also office chairs, so please grab them. Um, so Ivy is a community. And our entire mission, our entire belief is predicated on the fact that every single person has limitless potential. It's a question of how big we dream, how much action we take, who we meet, who we collaborate with. It determines the outcome and the impact that we get to make. Um, I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate a few months ago to meet Vishen Lakiani uh, in Italy, actually. And he has since become a true role model for me. So if in 10 years I can be where Vishen is, I would be, or halfway where he is, I'd be thrilled. <laughs> so, before this thing is accolades, I just wanted to mention that from a personal perspective with everything we're doing at Ivy, he's been an incredible role model and teacher and a great friend. So uh, really, really excited for him to be here. I want to tell you a bit about Vishen before he comes up here. So he is someone who truly lives what he teaches. He's someone who is all about unlocking potential. Um, and whatever he has to teach to the world, he first does it himself. So he's written this incredible book called The Code of the Extraordinary Mind. And uh, it was a New York Times bestseller. And it gave these 10 rules for how to unlock your potential. It was incredible. And uh, at our last event with Simon Sinek, one of our members who's here today, he mentioned to me, you know who you've got to get? You've got to get Vishen Lakiani. And here we are two weeks later. Um, <laughs> Uh, glad that Vishen is visiting town. So Vishen is also the founder and CEO of an incredible company called Mind Valley, and they do everything around education the way it truly should be done. Really focusing on areas of life that you can truly change to become a better person. So without further ado, I want to welcome Vishen up here. Let's give him a huge round of applause, Vishen. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So how's your New York trip going so far? It's, I, I love the city. I live, by the way, can you guys at the back hear me? This, this is good? Go louder okay. even. So um, I lived here for about three years when I graduated university, because uh, I had no other job offers. I moved to New York <laughs> and worked for a, a, a nonprofit um, for below the poverty line. So I had a shitty little New York apartment, but I love this place. So New York is where I learned um, to curse, which is why, which is why my, my book wasn't uh, allowed to be sold at Walmart. Um, it's why we have a chapter called Unfuckwithable. But it was my three years in New York that really defined me uh, as a, because I, I spent the formative years of my life, like 24 to 27-ish, here. Well, welcome back to the city. Uh, it's always uh, 
really great to have someone come and also come to our home here at IVHQ. So we have a very modest goal for this conversation, okay? So what I want to do, based on everything I've seen of Bishan, is I want to take this opportunity to have a kind of an exploration. So the two things I want to accomplish is, one, learn from you uh, through a very dynamic exchange here with everyone in the audience. One, how we can elevate our own lives. So from a personal level, how we can become better individuals, mind, body, and soul. And we'll go on those levels. And then I want to transition to talking about our impact on the world. So as we become better people, what are the key things we should get engaged with and how we can best get engaged there? Before we dive in though, we'd love to learn more about and share with everybody, what is, your, what is the vision that drives you and what's been your journey to get you to where you are um, in a nutshell? So, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Yeah. So, so I think a lot of the, the, the visions that we have for ourselves come from pain, right? It comes from some shit we experience in life that was really like maybe even our soul's way of telling us what we were meant to do. And so my vision actually came from pain. And this is really my New York story. After I graduated university, I, um, I couldn't get a job because I barely graduated. I didn't go to, the, go to the University of Michigan and get a degree in electrical engineering and computer science because that was what I really wanted to do. I did that because I'm an Indian dude, and if you're an Indian dude, like, like you gotta be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, or a family embarrassment, right? So, uh, or a taxi driver. Now my driving sucked, so I became an engineer. And so what happened is that, um, I studied engineering, but I barely passed. My GPA was 2.5. I couldn't get a job. It was 1999. I moved to New York, and the first thing I did is I joined a nonprofit called ISEC, uh, A-I-E-S-E-C. Now, ISEC was a, a nonprofit started after World War II to unify the world, to prevent future wars. So what they would do is they would take German kids, like in 19, this is 1945, post-World post War II, and French kids, and they would exchange them. These were college kids. They would exchange them between countries. The French kids would get jobs at German companies, and they would be befriended by German kids who would introduce them to German culture, likewise with the French. Now it expanded, and soon ISEC spread all across the world to 89 countries, including the United States, right? So ISEC was a nonprofit dedicated to creating world peace through cross-cultural understanding. So I came to New York to work for ISAC. Being a nonprofit, the pay was shit. Uh, I had to share an apartment in, um, um, like on 7th and 23rd Street, uh, a grimy little apartment. But I loved what I did because I was contributing to world peace. We would take American kids graduating from NYU or Baruch, get them jobs in the Middle East where they would learn and be exposed to Middle Eastern culture. We would take kids from the Middle East or Taiwan or Malaysia, get them jobs in the United States where they would learn about American culture. And the idea is that these people would grow up to be global leaders who stood for unity. So Isaac had an amazing track record. Um, our alumni included the presidents and prime ministers of Japan, Colombia, Portugal, uh, Marty Atisari, who won the Nobel Prize, Helmut Kohl, who uh, created the European Union. We were genuinely creating world leaders, but a very unique type of world leader, world leaders who stood for unity. In other words, they stood for, yes, making your country great, but ultimately seeing yourself as part of a larger species, planet Earth, human beings, the global world. 
and not blind um, nationalism. So that was what installed this disbelief in me. And unity um, became like one of my core values. Now that value was tested because after living in, in, in the United States for about nine years, all of a sudden I was in New York, I was arriving at JFK and um, um, the guy at the passport desk called me out and said, I'm sorry, I can't let you in. Um, we need to take you to a room and we need to investigate you further. And so I get pulled to this room and I find out that I've been added to a Muslim watch list. Um, now, I'm not a Muslim. I happen to be brown. I sometimes do not shave. Um, but I'm, I'm not a Muslim, nor should that even matter what the fuck I decide to believe, right? Uh, for the record, I, I'm, I'm non-religious. I believe in God, but I believe religion is a corruption of how God designed the world. So I don't have any beliefs associated with religion. I really embrace the best of all religions. But I was put in a Muslim watch list along with 81,000 other men from who were born in Muslim countries. This was 2003. I don't blame anyone. September 11 had just occurred. And you know, this was around two years after September 11. America had to take, had, had to take security measures. But all of a sudden, I could not live in America. My wife is European. We wanted our child born in New York. We wanted to raise our kid as an American. Um, I started my company Mind Valley in America. And all of a sudden, I had to report to the government every 28 days to be fingerprinted, photographed, and to give them my credit cards so they could see in case I bought fertilizer or something else. So, so that became my life. And although I loved America, and there's no other country in the world that I feel I culturally belong to, um, I could no longer stay here. So after four months of having to report to the government every 28 days, of not being able to fly out from certain airports or land in certain airports, having to go for a two-hour interrogation before I got on a plane, a three-hour interrogation as I got off a plane, I decided I, I can't live like this. And so I moved to Malaysia, and that's where Mind Valley took hold. Now, like I said, sometimes your vision for the world comes from the pain. Imagine the pain of being kicked out of the country you love, right? This was my identity. I couldn't relate to Malaysia. I, I'd long left the country. I don't speak the language. I don't have the religion. Um, all my friends were Americans. And so I had to build up Mind Valley from scratch as an American company in Malaysia. Now, this reinforced that drive for unity. And my vision for the world is to eliminate borders globally. I want to move the world. I want to move the human species to what I believe is the highest value of advanced civilizations, which is unity. It's the fact, it's the idea that we see ourselves as part of a greater species. We see ourselves as part of the human race. 200 years from now, when we are colonizing the planets, do you think those rockets are going to have American flags or are they going to have Earth flags? I want to ensure that we as a species in my generation create an Earth flag. I want to ensure that our children, the only flag they will wear on their backpack is a fucking earth flag. Because when we can get our species to think like that, we can truly work to move the human race forward and not deal with bullshit, like debating whether we should help refugees or a border wall. It's predicted that if borders disappeared, GDP would double or triple, right? Now again, I'm not some revolutionary trying to eliminate the idea for countries. Rather, I think countries are important, but I do believe that human beings are being brainwashed to look at a very narrow ecosystem of what is our we, what is our identity. And whether it is Trumpism 
or it's fundamentalist Islam, or it's right-wing uh, nationalism, which is grabbing a foothold in Europe, or it's Breitbart. Human beings are being programmed to take what is a very large circle of compassion, compassion for all life, for all creatures, for people of all religions, and to shrink that into compassion for just people of my ethnicity, my color, my language, or my nationality. That's what I want to disrupt. Now, the way to disrupt that is very deliberate. We have to change education models. We have to move religion to spiritual. We have, well, firstly, we have to move our education to stop teaching ideas that are outdated and to ideas that create the drive for unity. Mindfulness is one. We have to change our spirituality to take religion and dismantle it and instead adopt global spirituality that takes the best of every religion. We have to change our companies because you know, many companies right now are run on the premise of short-term profitability. What is Coca-Cola more than high fructose corn syrup marketed as happiness in a red can? A short-term way to poison the human species while creating plastic pollution in our ocean that really, if you think about it, there's no beneficial good for the human race. And the fourth thing is our politics. So what I want to do is to be able to influence politics across the entire planet by being able to bring together the world's greatest teachers and train the next generation of politicians who fight for unity to get power. So what I'm really trying to do and, and what drives me and what drives Mind Valley is not revenue, it's not profit, it's not a fucking IPO or appeasing a VC. It's unifying planet Earth into one species because if we continue living the way we do today, where the average American, if the entire world lived like the average American, we would need four and a half planet Earths to sustain ourselves. We're done for. Your kids, if you don't act now, will never be able to dive and see a coral reef. Giraffes are predicted to go extinct by 2030. Yet, we fight over stupid bullshit and this dumb left-right divide. So what I want to do is wake up the consciousness of the human species. And to do that, we gotta change education, we gotta change business, we gotta change religion, and we gotta change politics. So one by one, I'm trying to build the infrastructure to create that type of shift. So anyway, that's what I'm working on. <laughs> All right, well, aside from Vision Lakiani 2020. Um, so I just want to, that was incredibly inspiring. And I think. Sorry, really, I'm really intense. <laughs> I, it's because, yeah. Barry. I've so been, how was your day? Oh yeah. um, you chill the fuck down. You're in New York. We appreciate it. Yeah. This was great. Uh, I think, so you mentioned a lot of things there. I think what's really profound is um, how being forced to be separated caused you to be, get obsessed about unity, to think bigger. And I think there's so much going on in the world, and you've already made such a big change. There's millions of people watching Mind Valley's incredibly impactful content. You bring people together from all different countries, the way uh, I got to experience. Um, but to build all of that, there's all the needs that the world has. There's everything that's going on. But also, it's as much to do with you yourself internally, right? how you keep disciplined, how you keep happy you know, and positive despite like, all the extremely right. challenging aspects of building something is actually really hard. And the world doesn't necessarily make it easy. So 
That's why I want to transition now with this incredible vision that you've laid out uh, to go to the micro level. So going inside the minds. So for everybody here, we have rising leaders and established leaders in all kinds of different fields. Um, I want to really go into your mind and really understand how you uh, conduct your kind of mental life to help you build, to help you achieve this uh, mission. So I know that you also, you didn't mention, but Vishen was also, you were a yoga teacher. And you are a yoga teacher. No, uh, no sorry, so meditation, my bad. Life. He's just, you know why? He's in such good shape, I got confused for a moment. <laughs> and he's like stretching and everything. Uh, so meditation, right? That was one of the earliest things yes. actually you were doing. So just want to understand like what are, when you, if you had to narrow it down to the most important things of keeping like really strong mental health, mental perseverance, for both maximizing your happiness and fulfillment, but also your productivity. So, um, so I was working in, in Silicon Valley around 2002. So I lived in New York, and then I got angry at New York for whatever reason. I just got fed up, and I moved to Silicon Valley because a friend told me that, the, that you could surf, and, there was, and the beaches were amazing. <laughs> he didn't tell me that the water was like, two degrees, and if you're Malaysian, two degree water basically kills you. So I moved to Silicon Valley. I was there for like two years, got bored, came back to New York. But while I was in Silicon Valley, um, the dot-com bubble burst. And I had borrowed $30,000 from my dad with dreams of starting a company. Um, now, remember, I'd already shared with you guys that I sucked as a programmer. So, um, and, I had, and I never had a business degree, so obviously I was not made to be an entrepreneur. So I burned through my dad's 30 grand, I lost everything, and at a certain point I found myself having to, so broke that I was renting a couch from a Berkeley College student, right? And, and here I am with my fancy engineering degree, 24 years old, renting a couch from a Berkeley College student, like a two-seater couch, that was all the space I had. I was sending out my resume to every company on Craigslist, but no one was hiring. It was April 2001. That particular month, I remember reading that 14,000 people lost their jobs in the Bay Area. Now finally, um, some guy hired me, a company hired me, but it was for no pay. I had to pick up the phone and dial lawyers and sell them on technology. So I had to go to the San Francisco Public Library, check out the yellow pages, and then hustle back to the office, and then call every attorney in uh, Portland or San Antonio from A to Z and sell them on technology. Now, if you're a 26, I was 24, 26, I forget, um, Malaysian kid with a funny accent, a name like Vishen Lakiani, and you have to interrupt lawyers in Texas in the middle of the day, <laughs> like you hear more fuck you or fuck off or don't call me again um, than you can imagine. So after like several months of going through this one, after like maybe one particular day when the 27th person had told me to fuck off, and I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is happening to my life? And my parents, my dad, I'm too embarrassed to tell them what, like, what my life is like. Um, I decided I needed a, a, a shift. So I get on Google. Uh, Google was an early search engine back then. And I, I search for hope, right? I, I type in something like, why does life suck so bad? <laughs> or, or Google, help me. And I find this class on meditation. So I fly to LA, I take this class on meditation, I come back, and this class has shifted me. Well, firstly, when I showed up to the class, I was the only person who showed up. Meditation wasn't cool back then. So I was the only person to show up. I felt really sorry for the instructor. But I learned these things in this class. And one of the things I learned is to 
access altered states to tap into intuition. So I go back, and, and one of the things that I learned in this class is that you can access certain states and tap into intuitive ideas which are beyond your five senses. So again, I have the yellow pages, but now rather than blindly call every lawyer from A to Z, I would meditate in the office, run my fingers down the pages, and then feel an impulse on what names I needed to call. And then I would call those names. Just doing that alone doubled my closing rate. Now, the thing is, I'm an engineer, left brain, right? Sales is very empirical. It's very data-driven. You know the number of calls you have to make to get the number of receptionists who are going to answer the calls, the ratio of whom are going to pass it to the lawyer, the ratio of whom are going to say, yes, I want you to send me a brochure, the ratio of whom are going to close. It's all data. And so I could track this data. Doing nothing else, I double my closing rate in one week. So I thought, this is really cool, let me go deeper. So the next thing I studied was creative visualization. I would visualize myself closing lawyers. Again, it doubled. Then I, vis then I, I, I learned empathy meditation, which is where you meditate and you set an intention. You see the person in front of you and you mentally tell yourself, you send them compassion and love. Uh, it's a Buddhist meditation. And you tell them and, and you set an intention that whatever is best for everyone will occur. And again, I double my sales. So next thing I know, it's been four months. I've been promoted three times. I made director of sales, and my boss ships me out to New York to run an office here. I then used this ability to negotiate and get this amazing space for my company in Chelsea Market. So we got the space that is now, that today is YouTube Studios. That was my office. It was spectacular. And now I'm running this company in New York, but I'm not telling anyone that I'm able to ace what I do because I'm secretly using meditation to access altered states. Um, finally, my boss is telling me, like, what the fuck is going on? How are you doing so well? And I tell him, I think it's called um, ESP, you know? <laughs> and, and he's like, nah, that's bullshit. It doesn't it exist, but whatever you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm acing my job, but then I, I find out that, that the values of my company are bunk. The company has no values. It's all about sales. It wasn't about customer satisfaction. Um, attorneys were complaining about the software, so I quit. And I, I decide that I want to quit, and I want to do something meaningful. So I remember Nelson Mandela said, you want to change the world, change education. And I was thinking to myself, why the hell didn't I ever learn this in school? So I decide to become a meditation instructor. So I quit my high-paying um, director of sales job running this amazing office in Chelsea Market to become a meditation instructor for shit pay. And, I, and my, the problem is, I don't tell my wife. <laughs> so if you're about to quit your job to become a meditation instructor and toss it all away, you do want to tell your spouse. Um, so anyway, she understands. We figure it out. I start teaching meditation. Um, and then that's when I get on the immigration watch list, right? Now, of course, when you quit your job, you also lose your, your visa. So uh, it was a combined factor of all of those things that made me move back to Malaysia. But that is what sparked Mind Valley. So Mind Valley then emerged from my fascination with meditation. So I started going really deep in meditation. And um, um, the style I developed <coughs> evolved. It's something today that's called the sixth phase. Any of you heard of the sixth phase meditation? So uh, sixth phase recently got covered uh, 
10 days ago, it got covered in Billboard magazine and Ebony magazine and MSN and LA Weekly because it turned out the R&B star, Miguel, you know, he wrote the, the music for the movie Coco. He wrote Remember to Forget, which was a hit song this year. Turns out that he uses the six face before his concert. So it got us a ton of publicity. Uh, and I decided to make the six face free. So if any of you just Google six face, you'll find it out. The whole program is free on the web. But the six face is based on stacking together in a very methodical fashion six different styles of meditation to improve your ability to function at work. You see, the problem with most meditation is that it's boring as fuck. <laughs> you all know that. How many people have tried meditating and going, oh, what, what the hell am I doing? Let's see what's on Netflix. <laughs> right? So, like, so meditation is very confused in the West. Um, we glorify it, we glamorize it, we, we, we confuse it. The problem is there are two types of meditation. There's hermetic meditation. Hermetic meditation is wonderful if you are a hermit, right? <laughs> if you don't have to worry about spouse and kids and salaries and careers and how many likes you're gonna get on Instagram and <laughs> IV meetups. And then there is what we call modern meditation. And modern meditation is based on a different idea. It's based on that the idea, in the words of Emily Fletcher, who's a famous New York meditation teacher, based on the idea that the point of meditation is not to get good at meditation. The point of meditation is to get good at life. And so modern meditation is about taking your shit, taking your anxiety, your stress, <coughs> and being able to eliminate it so that you can be clear in terms of what you want to do. So I started developing modern meditation methods. Screw the hermetic meditation. I mean, this isn't like 11th century India. And I can say that because I'm, I'm from India. So <laughs> one of the, so, so the, the six phase stacks upon, stacks on itself, six different parts of meditation. Now, I won't go deep into it. If you want to learn, Google six phase. Um, there is a free program on it. Or if you're on your phone right now, download the Mind Valley Quest app. Go to Discover, you can enroll in the program for free. Mind Valley Quest is our learning platform. So six phase is based on this. So the first thing is that compassion. So remember I said unity is the number one driver? Neil Donald Walsh, the great uh, American author who sold like 15 million books said, unity is the highest value of advanced civilizations. It's the idea that our compassion extends beyond us to encompass all life. Now the first phase of the sixth phase is based on this idea. It's based on compassion. You basically visualize your heart energy, your compassion, filling uh, in ever-expanding circles your family, your community, your coworkers, your city, your country, and then the entire world. That's phase one. Phase two is gratitude. Gratitude, by the way, has been studied by science vigorously right now, and no other human characteristic has as high a correlation with overall well-being than gratitude. So gratitude just instantly boosts happiness level. Studies show that if you can practice gratitude, even for like one or two minutes a day, for 30 days straight, at the end of 30 days, you're 25% happier than the control group. But the crazy thing is, nine months later, you continue being happier. Even if you stop, it has this weird permanence. So gratitude is phase two, you practice gratitude. Phase three is forgiveness. Forgiveness is really interesting. A lot of people like dismiss it, but studies, uh, one study in Israel found that forgiveness boosts endurance. Uh, another study at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands found that forgiveness improves your vertical jump. If you play basketball, <laughs> forgive. <laughs> so, so, so forgiveness is, 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 is three. Now phase one, two, and three, uh, which is essentially compassion, gratitude, forgiveness, is all about dealing with your present 
and dealing with your past. In meditation, that's called shadow work, or it's, it's called uh, bliss, right? Focusing on bliss. So these are designed to improve your present emotional states. But in the modern world, if you live in the United States, you gotta be thinking of the future because we are here to create, we're here to build, we're here to like change the world. Phase four, five, and six is about that future. So phase four is where you practice creative visualization to see your life three years ahead. Phase five is where you then practice a concept called segment intending to see how today is going to unfold for you and to see that unfold in the most beautiful way. And phase six, really simple, it's prayer. Um, all of us have some religious or cultural tradition. Phase six is called a blessing. You simply ask whatever higher power you believe in to bless you so that you can do what your soul is here to do. Now, when you stack that on, six phase creates a phenomenal boost in human performance, right? And it's how I start every day. Um, so a lot of my success, if I attribute it to one thing, it's the six phase, and it takes about 20 minutes. And again, you know, the course is free. I want to get this out. About a million people practice it. Uh, if you read my book, it's in the book as well. But the sixth phase optimizes your mind and brain to like, to like function at its best. And the crazy thing is it's all validated by science, except phase six. Phase six is prayer, comes from culture. But just because prayer isn't validated by science yet, we, doesn't mean we dismiss it because billions of people, it, it, uh, it's a part of their lives. The other five phases have all been validated by science. Science has shown that these create positive, beneficial effects in us. And so when you stack them all together, it becomes a performance enhancement tool that is, that's wild. It's, it's, it changes the way you function at work. Phase one makes you kinder. It makes you more compassionate. It makes you less angry, less of an asshole. It's, it, it makes you less dickish, basically. <laughs> Phase two makes you happier. Phase three, forgiveness makes you feel safer. It makes you feel more secure in an in a unpredictable world. Phase four makes you clear on your future goals. Phase five makes you expect the best today. And phase six makes you feel supported. When you layer this on, you're emphasizing your, your, your human ability. So I used to play computer games as a kid, and I used to play this game called Rings of Zilfin um, back in the 80s. Anyone ever played Rings of Zilfin? Right, because I'm older than most of you guys. Right? Um, so in Rings of Zilfin, you control this little character called Reese. This is on these, these ASCII -like, like computer screens, like the Commodore 64, and you've got to travel across the land and defeat the evil Lord Dragos. And to defeat evil Lord Dragos, you've got to do these little, these little challenges and boost your endurance and boost your stamina and boost your accuracy. Um, and so I figured out that, as a 12-year-old, that the game you know, was way too boring and long. So I was just gonna hack the game by playing around with, with, with the data and giving Reese superpowers on all of those levels. As human beings in the real world, we need that same leveling up. We need to level up our compassion, level up our expectations of the positive future, level up our feelings of security, level up our feelings of compassion. And that's what Six Days is doing. It's leveling up because the world beats you down. So when you level up, you go and you can face your day as an optimized human being. And that's what meditation is about. It's not about freaking focusing on your breath and clearing your mind. That's a tiny slice. That's mindfulness. It's a tiny slice and that's beneficial. You get that benefit too. But meditation is so much more. So anyway, that's how I train people to optimize their being. So the six phase has now been used by players at every major American professional sports team, by rock stars like Miguel, and a lot of super performers find that this is the style that works for them because it's not boring. And it's about channeling what it is that you wanna do in the world 
and, and putting that within your meditation and then amplifying those results. Sounds like a powerful method. Definitely going to check it out tomorrow. Um, in the morning, so when you do this like for 20 minutes, right? It gets you, you said like it, it lasts, you know, it's a performance enhancing right. uh, practice. What about like moment to moment? I saw just before you got up, you closed your eyes. It looked like you did a small meditation. Oh, right. Or maybe you were just closing your eyes. But uh... <laughs> I hope Barry doesn't notice. I hope Barry doesn't notice. <laughs> so, so what I was doing before yeah. I get up, uh, every time I talk to an audience, what I do is I practice a simple energy technique. So I firstly, um, I, I think by now, the world should accept the fact that we are more than just physical beings. That we have an energy, we have a consciousness coursing through us. Today, I was just doing an interview with Robert Pang, right? The uh, famous Qigong master who, who lives in New York. And um, Robert Pang is able to touch you with his fingers and you feel, he calls it a zap, you feel this bolt of electricity go through you. And that's from years of Qigong training. Now, he's an exception, but all of us have this energy. And Robert Pang taught me a simple exercise. I want you guys to try it now. Okay, just hold up your left hand. And I want you to hold up your right hand like it's a sword. Okay, now I want you to take a deep breath and on this deep breath, imagine as if you're breathing, but not through your nose, but through the pores on your skin. Okay, you're breathing through the pores on your skin and then as you exhale, imagine that you are exhaling and this energy is flowing straight out through this, this, these fingers, right? Think of these fingers as a sword, as an energetic sword. So you're breathing in through the pores of your skin, you're exhaling and this energy is shooting out through these fingers. Okay, now, I want you to try that. So breathe in with me. Close your eyes, breathing in through the pores of your skin. And as you exhale, imagine energy shooting out through your two fingers. Now breathe in again. Through the pores of the skin. And energy is shooting out through those two fingers as you exhale. One more time, breathe in. and the energy is shooting out through those fingers. Now, I want you to take those fingers and, and, and move them. Now you can open your eyes. Hold those fingers on your, to point at your left hand, okay? Now, move your fingers around and tell me if you feel an energy. You can try to imagine those fingers are, are piercing, like an energetic sword piercing your palm. You can imagine it's, it's slicing through, but it's all energy. You can move it in a circle. How many of you here on your palm just make a no noise, just say yes, feel. Yes. Right, you can feel that, right? Yes. So that, that is your chi. That's your chi or the energy body. Now, that energy goes through you. Robert Pang explained to me that when Bruce Lee would do his one-inch punch, any of you seen the one, no, I'm not gonna punch you. I'm just, <laughs> right, so when Bruce Lee, any of you guys seen Bruce Lee do the one-inch punch? I think there was this famous video of him doing it at Madison Square Gardens and he sends a guy like flying backwards nine feet. That's chi, that's chi energy. Now, we all have that. So what I was doing when I closed my eyes was simply going into that energy and expanding it to touch the energy bodies of everyone in this room and setting an intention for how I wanted to serve you in terms of me coming here. So the intention was to spread inspiration, to make it fun, to make it educational, um, to, to make it serve your needs, and that was it. It was just me expanding my energy 
um, I see it as, as like a red light that goes from my heart to all of your hearts. And you're visualizing that? I'm visualizing it. I'm pretending it's real and then setting that intention. So that's what I was doing. I do it every time I take the stage. And I find that it makes me a better speaker. So a lot of what I do in life, I work with energy. It's not just my physical body. It's not just um, my five senses. It's working at an energetic and at an intuitive level. So even in business, I bring energy and intuition into everything I do. Very powerful. Any other, uh, like how to maximize your energy type practice that you have? Well, so there are a couple of things, right? Now, now, what I just showed you was 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 just a simple demonstration to 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 understand energy. But in almost, we we are so used to seeing ourselves from one simple lens, and that is the physical body. But if you look at indigenous cultures, they they operate in a different level. They, they don't look at just the physical body, they look at the mind, they look at the spirit. So when you're looking at personal transformation, you really wanna look at all three. So for example, let's say you wanna grow your finances, right? You wanna be able to look at your day-to-day -day financial practices, savings, um, ability to invest, knowing where to put your money, knowing how much to spend, knowing what ratio of your salary to keep away versus invest versus spend on luxury and good times. That's, that's the physical level. That's the, the mind, rather. Then there's another level, which is the subconscious. And the subconscious means looking at your beliefs about money. For example, if you were raised by parents who believed that making money was hard, you're likely to carry that belief and getting rich will be associated with hard work. If you were raised by people who believe that making money was a breeze, you're likely to carry that belief. So that's, those are your beliefs. So again, there's the mind, there's the belief, but there's a third level and that's the soul. And the soul is really your energy body around money. The soul is what alternative healers do. So um, there's, a, there's an aspect of, of, of wealth right now, of, of clearing wealth where, um, these energy workers basically work with your energy body. Now, likewise, if you look at health, you have um, practices like yoga or running, which focus on the physical body. Then you have health practices that focus on the subconscious. For example, when a doctor prescribes you a placebo, that's really working with your subconscious. Then you have health practices that work on your spiritual body, which is essentially Qigong. Qigong does that, or energy medicine does that. So the point is that that we see ourselves as this one singular entity, but we are many different layers. There are many different layers to you. And when you see yourself as a series of different layers from your body to your mind, to your subconscious, to your, your, your soul or your essence, you start operating in the world in a different way. And, and that's really what I feel is the big shift that we have to go through as a human species to get to the next level of being able to truly live up to our potential. So there's so much in the mental sphere that you can do through these visualizations, this kind of perspective, this way of thinking, and these exercises that you refine, which it's amazing that right. I, so many people are using it already. Um, but you also did mention like the physical body. So you gotta also keep healthy physically too. So I know that you've looked into a lot of different right. nutrition-based and also exercise-based right. ways to uh, maximize your, also your physical well-being. So what have you found to be the most powerful Ways to uh, absolutely. So, Jason, would you stand up, please? So, so, um, <laughs> so. <laughs> don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to take off your shirt. No, unless you want to. So, 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 
work, work is something that fascinates me. But work is messed up in the Western world. Work extracts from you. In order to get a paycheck, we actually put our body and our mind uh, through extreme stress. And so work ages you. Work gives you anxiety. Work actually makes you die sooner, right? But how can we shift that? How can we make work a system where we still get stuff done, but it actually heals us. It makes us younger. It scientifically reverses aging. That's a one division of Mind Valley that, that's looking at work right now. My next book, Code of the Extraordinary Team, looks at how to change the way work functions. Now, Jason uh, works at Mind Valley, and there's this phenomenon in our company where, um, especially men who join the company in their first year, will lose the over 10 pounds. And by year two, many of them are running marathons or Spartan races. Jason, how many pounds have you lost? Um, from the peak to now, uh, 45 pounds. So Jason used to be 45 pounds heavier. Um, and he's now training. I think actually you just ran a Spartan race. Uh, it just did the Spartan, the 15 mile one, but it was at the open category. But now, like, what happens is in the workplace, you're surrounded by people that are thinking about their health and fitness. And now, because we have these courses and available stuff, we started looking for challenges that can push us to reach those kinds of goals. So the Spartan race became the one thing that I could focus on that if I need to do that and I didn't want to die, then every decision about what I eat, everything I had to decide about, like how I hit the gym became easy because I wanted to survive. And those were some of the things that we like learned because there's a lot of goal setting programs and we have the right information about nutrition and these fitness protocols like 10X. Right, so, so, so let me tell you what, what Jason experienced. Um, thanks Jason, you can sit down. Unless you want to lift your shirt and show people your abs. Because it is, it is an impressive set of abs. So, so, so a lot of, um, now, 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 now women, women lose weight as well, but women have different goals when it comes to weight loss. And certainly weight loss isn't the point. Like your weight doesn't freaking define you. However, your health, your body's health, really gives you an advantage and you want to treat your body really well. So um, two years ago, I stumbled upon a program called WildFit. The instructor was, um, actually he was just an entrepreneur, um, did a lot of special effects for movies like Pirates of the Caribbean. His name is Eric and um, Eric Edmeads had this weird obsession. He would spend time, he's from South Africa, and he would spend time hunting with the Bushmen. And as he was hunting with the Bushmen, he noticed that their patterns of exercise and, and eating was extremely different. Like 45-year-old Bushmen um, men had, had, mus had incredible musculature. They were able to, to walk and, and run like 40 kilometers without water, without food as they were hunting. Eric gained these abilities. He learned to hike Kilimanjaro in three days on nothing but water, no food. And he realized that the way that we've been trained to think of food in our bodies is, is BS. For example, daily recommended allowances, it's nonsense. Your body, your body functions on an annual cycle of food. Like, think about it, right? As we evolved, food was scarce during winter, more readily available during the, the summer and the spring. And so Eric developed a methodology called WildFit, and he was teaching it to his friends, and I was one of those friends. And I lost, I, I went from 22% body fat to 14% body fat in a span of three months, and I'd never experienced that before. I tried all forms of dieting. I couldn't, get, I couldn't lose my belly fat. If you look at pictures of me two years ago, I'm always wearing a shirt because I had something to hide. Or I'm wearing a vest. Now I get to wear t-shirts because imagine 14 pounds that was just on my waist disappearing. My belly completely disappeared. And it happened because of this program called WildFit. Um, now what WildFit was doing though was interesting. It wasn't a diet. 
Diets are a scam. The average American will do five diets in their lifetime. And here's why. Because you're essentially buying a product that is broken because you're so desperate. And then it doesn't work, so you put the weight back on. You put yourself through unnecessary suffering. You put the weight back on, you buy the next diet. You put the weight back on, you buy the next diet. So the average American will do five diets in their lifetime. And the average American is still, today, clinically obese. And the other thing is, exercise is a scam. Exercise is a scam uh, if you look at the late night infomercials, if you look at um, um, the way we, we are trained to understand exercise, it doesn't actually make you lose weight. Modern science, there was a recent article in Vox magazine that showed that 80-90% of your weight is what you eat. But the problem is, food is also a scam. 74% of the food in the average American grocery store contains sugar, and the reason is because sugar gets you to consume more. It doesn't get, take away your hunger, it makes you hungrier. And food companies are incentivized to make you want to buy as much of their junk. So what Wildfit does is really simple. It reprograms your behavior using neuro-linguistic programming. And so it changes your association to food. So for example, we are trained to understand hunger as a singular experience. In reality, there are six types of hunger. Hunger is not one experience. Hunger can come from actual thirst. Your body needs water. Hunger can come from a nutritional deficit. So you could eat like McDonald's all month and you'd still feel hungry because there's no freaking nutrients in there. Hunger can come from emotional hunger. When you're a child and you fall down and scrape your knee, your mom gives you a cookie. That cookie represents love. And so when we have an issue where we feel we need love, we reach for the ice cream or the cookie. So by understanding the real nature of hunger, by understanding how you're being brainwashed by food companies, the negative programming disappears and all of a sudden you start eating healthy and that's when the weight starts melting off. So Wildfit has like a remarkable success rate. 80% of people complete the 90 days, actually it's closer to 90% complete the 90 days and they don't put the weight back on. So that's how I lost weight, that's how Jason lost weight. Now the advantage is when you start eating healthy, what also happens is that your body, your body in, in, in the average Western country is trained to burn sugar for fuel. So your body's relying on sugar. But when you're eating healthy, all of a sudden your body now is burning fat. So all of us, on average, are carrying around a quarter million calories of fat around our waist. This is how Eric was able to climb Kilimanjaro without eating because he's just living off the fat. And fat as fuel is really efficient, really powerful energy generator. So all of a sudden, you're burning fat, you're losing weight, but you have these crazy boost of energies. You no longer get tired after lunch. Uh, your cognition is at new levels and you don't know what to do with all of this energy. So the next thing, I had to do, all of a sudden, like I had so much energy, you can see like I can't sit down. Um, I had to figure out new ways to optimize exercise. So what I wanted to do next was figure out how do I put on muscle. So the next thing we did was we went, so firstly, Wildfit, we, we merged with the company and Wildfit came into Mind Valley, and then we expanded it and we got it to thousands of people. And we are still testing and, and, and growing it, but I believe this is gonna be the food program that's gonna sweep America and it's gonna make diets obsolete. Now the next thing is 10X, and 10X is based is, is, a, is a program for optimizing exercise. Now even exercise we do wrong. So 10X is based on a concept called super slow training, and it's based on the work of a famous uh, doctor called Doug McGuff. He wrote a book called Body by Science. 
Uh, but the book is very convoluted. It's very hard to understand what he's saying. 10x basically reduces it to something really simple. And um, the program isn't out yet. Uh, we've been testing it on over 100 people, over 18 months of, of trials. And it's all about rapid muscle building for men and women. So it turns out that if you go to the gym and you're just doing reps, that's a very ineffective way of building muscle. You want to build muscle, there's only five exercises you need to do. And um, you guys want to learn them? So the first one is really easy. It's the leg press, super simple, just the leg press, right? Um, this, so that's the first one. The second one is chest press. The third one is the, um, the row. Super simple, forward motion, back motion. Now you're doing the chest press and then you're doing the row, that's a separate machine. The, the fourth exercise is the um, shoulder press, again, super simple. And then the fifth exercise is the lat pull down, right? So really, really, really easy. Um, you guys wanna try this with me? Okay, chest press, don't, don't just, just move your leg, just sense your leg, don't kick the person in front of you. Okay, uh, so that, sorry, that's leg press. And then chest press, just do this with your hands. Okay, roll, just pull back, super simple, okay? And then um, shoulder, and then the lat pull down. So those are the five exercises that cover all your, your, your entire body. Now the, the thing is this, right? When you're doing these exercises, you don't go for reps, you go for time and you go super slow. So you put your cell phone down, you set a timer and you do your chest press incredibly slow and you try to, to, to move as slow as you can for between one, 60 seconds to 90 seconds. And if you can hit 90 seconds, you raise the weight. So first, of course, you need to know what is your like, maximum weight, right? And you can just test it out, you know, just, just test your maximum weight. So you raise the weight. Now, the point is to just do it for 90 seconds and you're done. So you can do all five exercises in 15 minutes. Now here's the thing, then you forbid yourself from going to the gym for seven days. People mistakenly think that they go to the gym more often, their muscles will grow. Turns out that's not true. Your muscle needs what is called recovery time and that recovery time is around seven days. So you literally go to the gym for 15 minutes, then you don't go to the gym again, do anything else you want, do yoga, but just don't lift weights, give your muscle recovery time. You go back to the gym seven days later and you will automatically find that your time, either your time has gone up or your weights can go up because you've actually improved your strength. Now we have tested this on, on on an average population size between the ages of 20 to 40, the average strength increase is 26% in four weeks. On people over 70, the strength increase, uh, my father saw a 68% strength increase in four weeks. Now imagine what happens if your strength goes up 68%. My dad could finally climb stairs, because he's 70 years old, could climb stairs without effort. Um, but even if you are between 20 and 40 and you see a 25% strength increase, that's literally like, like taking a giant load off your back. Now your energy goes up even higher. You have literally 25% more power in your body, right? And that changes, that's a game changer for people because you have more energy to power through the day. So super slow strength, super slow strength training is incredibly powerful and, and, and I feel everyone should be looking into it. So we started doing it, we established a gym in our office, we train everybody who comes into Mind Valley. We, have a fitness coach and we put them through super slow, um, um, super slow strength training and the results on people's body has been really, really, really great. So people transform, they, are, they, are, they, they get the V-shaped body, which is really important. They get more musculature, they get more focused thinking because uh, strength, by the way, um, 
the, the more you train, the more um, it improves your cognition. But the other thing is, the, the human, um, the exercise which has the highest correlation with longevity is strength training. So when you strength train, you're actually increasing your lifespan uh, in, a, in a really dramatic way. Do you know the number one cause of accidental death for Americans um, past 70? It's falling down. It's because after 40, you will lose 1% of your body's musculature every year. And you will put on one pound in fat every year. And by the time you hit 70, um, if you're the average American, according to CBS News, the number one cause of accidental death is going to be falling down because your muscles are weak. They can't protect your bones. But if you're doing strength training, your muscles do not deteriorate. And so you have more energy, and you live longer, and you need less, um, less, less visits to your doctor. So anyway, that's, that's what we're looking at. Wild fit, whoops, and super slow, uh, super slow strength training. Uh, our program is called Tanx, but unfortunately, it hasn't been released yet to the public. But I've given you kind of a glimpse of what you can look into. And if you really want to study this, do get the book Body by Science. Thank you, Vish. You've taken, an amazing, take us, taken us on an amazing journey, mind, body, talked a lot about also soul and spirituality. Before I go into like world issues and stuff, I really want to open it up to the audience. I'm sure you've uh, sparked a lot of thoughts here. Sure. So everybody, and we're going to try to do like, you know, a few quick questions, quick answers. So let's try to get through a few. I really want to hear what everyone's thinking. So if you've got a question, please reach up high. Um, let's start from the back right there. Yep. Right. Sure. Well, I'm happy to answer. Firstly, um, going to the gym together is great, but if you can set up proper protocols, proper protocols, proper measurements, uh, and make so. So again, there's a whole psychological aspect to that. So I don't want to. I don't want you to think that just going to a gym together or playing sports together is the ultimate way, right? Because. Um, the way we do it is based on human psychology. For example, when we go to the gym together, there are certain specific goals which are made to be fun for people to hit. Okay, but now let's go back to mental health. So um, I just took a bunch of new hires at my company for lunch. And one of the things I told them is, look, um, you guys have families, you guys have kids, many of you are moms. If you have to work more than 60 hours a week at this job, you're too stupid to be working here. That was rule number one, right? And in fact, I recommend they work 50 hours max because studies show that if you go beyond 50 hours, your productivity goes down. But worse than that, if you go beyond 50 hours, you're actually sacrificing your own health. Now, the second rule uh, that we tell them is that you're going to put your health and your well-being number one before the company and before the job. And that's a very important belief. So we encourage them to go to the gym. We encourage them to eat well. We encourage them to set goals for themselves. And that has to be their number one focus. The company is number two. And, and we genuinely believe that. And I know it sounds weird, but we genuinely believe that. If your health is not your number one focus, you're not going to be in shape to deliver to this company. Our goal isn't to break you. It isn't to extract from you. It's to make you so happy, so healthy, so loving your job so much because you know your job cares about you. Okay, that, that's rule number two. Now, rule number three 
is when you set your goals for the quarter, you're going to set five goals. Four are going to be for the company. One has to be a personal goal. And your team is going to support you in this. So the personal goal might be running your first marathon, or it might be losing X pounds, or it might be reading uh, 50 books this year. But one, so we, we use OKRs, which is the concept from Google, but one out of five OKRs for an individual has to be a personal goal. Now the fourth thing is that um, we believe the future of work is not just asking people to be engaged in the company vision, it's companies being engaged in each individual's vision. Right? So the company actually will support you in your goals. Meaning, um, if you want to learn public speaking, we'll bring in public speaking coaches for everybody who wants to learn public speaking. You want to figure out how to r r r run for a marathon? Great. We're going to bring in fitness trainers. We're going to like, help the company's going to organize like a group of people who are going to be able to run together. We actually invest in our employees' personal goals. So I believe that the nature of work has to change, that, that this whole idea that, that employees are cogs in the wheels of machinery isn't healthy. It isn't healthy for people. It isn't healthy for the business. So we flip that around. We believe businesses and companies should be places that actually nurture human health. We feel work should be, uh, should be a thing that actually makes you healthier, happier, wiser, makes you more yourself, and makes you the greatest version of yourself. And, and so that's, that's really how we, we take care of mental health. It isn't an issue because we're not breaking people to get output. So we got this on video. We'll send you that clip. You can just forward it to your boss and just say, thanks and regards. Yeah, all right. No, I, I really want to print t-shirts. If you have to work more than 50 hours at this job, you're too stupid to be working here. Like, like this whole American obsession with overwork is dumb. It's crazy dumb. American workers work more hours than their European counterparts and are less productive. And they die younger. You guys, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be blatant here so the point sinks in. You guys will die, uh, have, have a lifespan two years less than the average European. And that's sad. This country's culture of work is broken. All right, on that happy note, next question. Right here. Right. Um, my name is Raj, um, and thanks, uh, Barry, for creating this opportunity for us. Uh, we should be talked about uh, disrupting education, corporations, religion, uh, diaspora, and also... The I didn't say disrupting diasporas. Uh, Don't put words in my mouth. How our belief in religion is and how, we, how the political landscape is, and there needs to be some disruption in that space. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what kind of experiments or work that has gone into, especially in the, in the political space and in the religious space, uh, for Mind Valley or some other efforts? Right. Well, one of the things um, with, with, with religion, is um, understanding the difference between spirituality and dogma, right? Like, I've been talking a lot about spirituality. When I talk about us recognizing our spiritual side, our minds, our subconscious, that's really dabbling with spirituality. It's a lot, it's a lot deeper than that. But the thing is, once you start going deep into spirituality, you start seeing that religion serves a wonderful purpose in terms of cultural traditions, in terms of rituals. But very often, the problem with religion is that the dogmatic element of it actually prevents you from embracing true spirituality. So religion often keeps you at the ethnocentric world stage. Uh, sorry, there's no whiteboard here. But human beings, in terms of their worldviews, can exist at four different stages. There is the egocentric stage. The egocentric stage is where it's all about you. It's all about you and your family. Egocentrism is, is, 
is really a selfish form of existence, right? If, if, but if you go back 20,000 years ago, when we were primarily hunter-gatherers, let's say you, you saw a bison, and there was another hunter that you didn't recognize, who wasn't from your tribe, who saw that bison, you might go and kill him, so that bison was just for your tribe. That's egocentrism. It's about the survival of you and your family, no one else. Now, as we evolved as a species, we moved to a different level of understanding our belonging, and that's called ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism means, yes, you're kind, yes, you're, or, yes, you're awesome, but mostly to people of your own ethnicity, color, language, religion, or, or um, um, national identity. So when you see people who are, who are talking about building a border wall, they're operating from an ethnocentric existence. When you see Brits voting for Brexit, that's ethnocentrism. No one is saying it's, it's wrong. Human development theorists uh, estimate that 70% of the world today is ethnocentric, which means that they've simply been trained to see their compassion as their nationality or religion or culture. Ethnocentrism is rife in places like China and Russia. In America, though, there's a new emergence, and I guess this is because of America's diversity. It's called world-centrism. So the overall global population is 30% world-centric. Now, world-centric means, yes, I love my culture, but I appreciate other cultures, I appreciate other languages, I appreciate other religions. So world-centrism is, is, a, is a slightly more um, um, emerging idea. It's, it's becoming very dominant in Canada and the United States because so many cultures come together, right? But if you look, for example, even in America, I don't see a left-right left -right divide. I see a world-centrism, ethnocentrism divide. It's not left or right. Because if you look at left or right, it's no longer the classical like economic policies and stuff. It's really ethnocentrism or world-centrism. Trump stands for ethnocentrism. Obama stands for world-centrism. Now, if you're ethnocentric, you will see world-centric and think they are silly. You will see Obama giving a greeting to Persians during the Persian New Year as scandalous. How dare he gives a greeting to Iranians who want to blow us up? But if you're world-centric, you look at Trump's border wall and you think, that's ridiculous. Why aren't we helping a country that's less privileged than ours? So again, um, depending on where you are, it has to do with your worldview. Now, the world is moving more towards world-centrism. But there's a level above it, and that level is called cosmocentrism. Cosmocentrism, according to human development theorists, suggests that your levels of compassion extend beyond the human race to the entire cosmos, which means if an alien spaceship landed, an Uygha, guardian of the galaxy, got out, and he was slimy and had tentacles emerging from his mouth, you would still go and give him a hug, because, hey, he's sentient. That's cosmocentrism, right? So religion keeps people rooted at ethnocentrism. Think about the world religions. We are the chosen people. Islam is the one part to God. Jesus is the son of God, right? Religion keeps people at the ethnocentric level. But if you look at the great religious leaders, they are beyond that. The Pope washed the feet of Muslims. Gandhi said, I'm a Hindu, but I'm also a Muslim, and I'm a Jew, and I'm a Catholic. The great religious leaders have gone beyond religion. The people keep it down. So um, I love the fact, I, I love the current Pope. He's actually world-centric, right? He's gone beyond just Christianity. The world needs to move upwards to world-centrism and spirituality is a way to get us there. But the spirituality is not, um, is, is, is not the spirituality that modern religions are providing. Modern religions have served their purpose. They were important during a time when the world was mostly ethnocentric. But with a dominance, a new dominant culture of world-centrism, 
we need to uplift religion. And so the barriers between religions have to break down. So anyway, that's, that's, that's how one would change religion. Now this happens automatically. This happens automatically when you start a meditation practice. It happens automatically when you travel the world. And so um, this, this, is, this is something that's really important to me. I want to break down the barriers between religions. It doesn't mean ending religion. I think there's so much beauty in, 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 in the traditions that arise from religion. But where religion gets bad is when, like I live in a country where if you're Muslim, you cannot marry a non-Muslim. And, and that's insane. But that's what, how the majority of the human race lives right now. So that's what we want to shift. Thank you, Vishen. Yeah. Female question. Yes, go ahead, right there. <laughs> yeah, um, so uh, my name is Gloria. And also I feel um, you are sharing of the uh, insights and also your vision about the world is really inspiring and resonate with us. And so my question is, uh, from the entrepreneur um, perspective, what do you think is the biggest trend which um, differentiates your company and also uh, dwarf other competition? Differentiates my company from other competition? Yes. Okay, so there is a model. So firstly, so firstly, there's a great book called Tribal Leadership written by a guy called Dave Logan. And Dave Logan looked at the cultures within companies. And he said that these cultures can fall into five different divisions. And these divisions actually are very similar to what I just shared, ethnocentrism and, and, and so on. It has to do with how the tribe within the company functions, right? Dave Logan suggested 1% of all tribes globally are at tribal level one. Tribal level one is where you see the world this way. I suck and the world sucks. You find level one tribes in in prison gangs. They are miserable and they see the world as a horrible, dark, fucked up place. Now, there's a level above that, that's level two. Level two is where you see, I suck, but you know, there are people in the world who have it well off. Think about workers in factories in China making Nikes or your iPhone, right? They are underpaid, they hate their jobs, they probably can't afford the Nike shoes or the, the iPhone, but they know someone is buying that. Their, their life sucks, but they know there are other people out there who have it good. That's level two. Now, level three is 49% of American companies. It's the majority of, of companies in the US. Uh, level, so level three is the most popular one. Level three is this. I'm awesome, but the other guy, I got to watch out for him because he might steal my awesomeness. In other words, it's political. It's competitive within the company. So I worked for a level three organization in sales. I had to close the sale or someone else would. And salespeople would actually, like, like knowingly, like sabotage each other's deals. I remember a guy coming to my assistant who was great at like booking calls and saying, hey, I'll pay you double what Vision is paying you, right? And I lost my assistant. That's level three. That's actually the majority of American corporations. Now there's a level above that, level four. Level four is what you find in companies like Facebook. It's what you find in companies like Google. I'm awesome, we are awesome. But the competition, we gotta compete with them. So for example, people in Google, they wear Google t-shirts. People in Facebook, they wear Facebook t-shirts. They love their coworkers. There's very little politics within the company. But Facebook is still competing with Apple, still competing with Google. Likewise, Google is competing with Apple and Amazon and Facebook. They're all competing with each other, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's level four. Now there's a level above that. And when Dave Logan was studying certain companies, he discovered this level and he called this level level five. Level five is where it's not about us as the company, 
It's about the mission. And he said he first detected this in the company Genentech. He was interviewing people at Genentech, and he asked them, who's your competition? And he thought that they would mention another big pharma company. But they said, our competition is cancer. We want to help eradicate cancer. Now, when you move to level five, your competition is that, that dark part of the world that you want to help disappear. For Genentech, it was cancer. And for Mind Valley, it's, it's ethnocentrism. It's dogma. And so we don't really have competition. If there are other personal growth companies that are helping spread enlightened ideas, we want to support them. If there are other personal growth companies which are helping spread world-centric issues or, or helping spread alternative therapies or helping make the world healthier, they are allies. They're not a competition. Because if they were a competition, then it means that we are bullshitting you about our mission. Our mission is to spread enlightened ideas. That means supporting other companies that spread enlightened ideas. And so you know, we, we willingly help these companies. Uh, like recently, you'll notice on my Instagram, I gave a shout out like, to a company called Jobatical that helps people across the world get jobs. They don't pay me. I just thought, wow, what they're doing is so cool. It fits in with our, with our world vision. I want to support them. Our competition is Trumpism. Our competition is bad schooling. Our competition is fundamentalist religion. That's what we are fighting with. So anyway, that's my competition. Thank you very and, much. And again, by, by the way, guys, I apologize if any of you um, voted Republican. I used to vote Republican. Trumpism is not Republican to me. It's just ethnocentrism rearing its ugly head. And part of my job is to help push it into the garbage bin of history so my daughter doesn't have to go through that shit when she emerges from college. So no offense. Uh, I'm not political, but I am. I am. Part of my goal here on Earth is to move the world towards world centrism. And so anything that keeps the world obsessed with nationalism is my competition, and that's just my truth. But you know, many of my mentors are Trump supporters, and I love them. There's no issue. So please don't confuse me competing with Trumpism as a political stance. It isn't. Thank you very much. Um, let's go back there. Yep. So uh, I was reading a study that said it's difficult for people to think about the long-term growth of the planet. And you talk about the, you know, thinking about us as a species and a human fiber. And the reason people can't think that way is because the average lifespan is only 80 years. Right. So if you tell someone we're going to run out of bees in 2040 and it'll be a calamity, well, that's, you know, 22 years from now, that's 30 some odd percent of a lifespan. So, from a human perspective, that's an eternity away. Right? So, how do you get people to think beyond themselves because of just our limitation of lifespan and time thinking? So, so I don't think it's that. I, I, actually, I actually do not think it's that. I think what's really going on there is that. Human beings get our beliefs. We get our beliefs from the culture around us. So, so what, what happens is that older generations teach us, right? And, and, and they condition us in certain ways. And I don't think it's that, you know, we, we don't care about climate change because we don't think we're going to live around to see it. I think it's just that our education system trains us to think short term. If our education system trained us to think five generations ahead, trained us to, 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 to believe that the point of business wasn't just shareholder value or getting rich, 
but was to create a product or service that creates a long-term benefit for the world, I believe we as human beings would pursue that. I think it's just programming. It's just bad training. It's not subconsciousness, it's just bullshit training. It, it's happening at the conscious level. One more question, right there. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if you have an idea, because I know you do a lot of experiments. We've met before, right? You're really familiar. Right. So I was talking with this guy from Platypus Institute, I don't know if you know them. So they talk about this problem of personal development not being mainstream. Yet, I mean, there's supposed to check, but because we don't have like one like performance indicator, like we have money that drives capitalism right. in one direction, or we have a glucose level that you know you know whether you have diabetes or not, but we don't have something like that for like human uh, development, personal growth. And you have something like that that would tell us, yes, you're spending time in like beautiful emotional states, right. like you're joyful, enthusiastic, whatever, versus you're fearful, angry, and so on. You're doing well. So if we would have that, then there would be a whole set of things that we would know. For example, that money won't make us happy. Putting more bottles will not make us happy. So I was wondering, um, in your opinion, how far we are for having an indicator like that that will help with those four kind of right. pillars that you mentioned. Well, the problem is it's really the problem is it's really hard to measure, right? So so we've we've looked at that problem, and um, it, it's a complex one. I, I don't know when that's happening, but the m personal growth has already hit critical mass long ago. Uh, there's an author called Tara Nicole Nelson. She wrote a book called The Transformational Customer. Oh, sorry, The Transformational Consumer. And she estimates that 51% of consumers in America are now transformational consumers. That means they make their choices based on transformation. They would shop, for example, at Whole Foods, paying 25% higher grocery prices because it's going to lead to health. They care about companies that emphasize certain values, like Nike's, certain, uh, like Nike's recent Colin Kaepernick uh, ad. That's 51% of America, so it is mainstream. Now, if you look at Apple, Apple is also helping drive this mainstream. If you look at the Apple Watch uh, and, and Apple's uh, store, they are encouraging apps that measure four things, activity, sleep, nutrition, and mindfulness. Now, the measurements are getting more and more accurate, but more and more apps are now measuring this, measuring sleep, measuring activity, measuring mindfulness, measuring nutrition. And so this is changing. And I think it's, it's less than a decade before we shift as a species in terms of how we measure and value success. So we've got a few minutes left okay. to wrap up. Uh, before we do, uh, it's been incredible hearing all the different frameworks you've had to share and with such passion and enthusiasm you have. I want to wrap up asking you to cover just two things. One is how can the Ivy community support you, right? It really feels like you've got so many things figured out and you know what you're, what you're going for, but what does everybody here and everyone who'll be watching this later can do to support you and your endeavors, that's one. And then I'd love for you to wrap up with a call to action to this uh, audience here. Uh, what would be your call to action to everybody here to live a better life, make a bigger impact? Well, I think the unique thing about this Ivy community is that you guys are primarily Americans, right? And I think America is a really important part in the world today, but it's not fulfilling that role. It's shunning the United Nations. It is denying climate change. It is, it, it's, it's the world leader. In 2001, 
in Malaysia, I wrote an article for the newspapers because in 2001, it was a slightly anti-American time. Uh, sorry, this was like 2003. It was a slightly anti-American time because the Gulf War had started and I was pro-America. And I wrote an article that essentially said this, why, why Muslim countries need to embrace Americanism and not Arabis, Arabism or Arabana, Arabization, something like that. And I said, look, America's the only country in the world that embraces the world. It doesn't bully the world. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, enforce its culture. It embraces the world. It lets its culture jump around and it lets the best ideas take hold. Look at Hawaii. America invaded Hawaii, but it didn't strangle off Hawaiian culture. It made Hawaiian culture global. Today, everybody knows the word luau. They know about hula dances, right? America is this amazing country that straddles the world because it embraces the world. And I said that we all need to be more like America. But I can't say that today. Because America is the country that's denying global climate change. It's the country that is building border walls. And so if I could ask one thing for the Ivy community, it's get out there and vote. And please give us the America that we want. Because I, I used to remember the days in Malaysia when 4th of July, like we would, as Malaysians, even with no Americans in our group, would celebrate 4th of July parties. <laughs> and now we don't. So I want to see America rise up again. And that America isn't a nationalistic America. It's America that's world-centric. We need you guys. Thank you. And how can we support you on your journey? Um, <laughs> tell people about my book if you like this talk. <laughs> Uh, Do you have copies here? Um, no, but we'll send the link to the book. Yeah, I'm excited to get it myself. Yeah. Um, we're going to have the bar reopen. There's incredible people in this room, so I hope you all get to connect. Vision will also stick around for a drink or two. Um, cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Let's give it up for Vision. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.